Oh, gracious and loving Heavenly Father, I thank you for having provided me with the opportunity to put forward your word. Lord, I am in your hands, and though I may stumble, you are with me. And may your message be presented as you would have it. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. I'd like to uh, get your help, if I may. We all read our Bibles here, I'm sure. So I'm going to ask you, within the last six months, with a show of hands, in the last six months, how many of you read, have read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Hands, please. Okay. And as Adventists, we all love the book of Revelation, so how many people have read the book of Revelations in the last six months? Okay. Well, let's go to the Old Testament then. Genesis, the creation story, the, the beginnings. Who has read Genesis in the last six months? Okay, we're doing well. And uh, again, as Adventists, we love the book of Daniel. So who's read Daniel in the last six months? Wow, I'm impressed. Okay, so who's read Haggai in the last six months? Uh, who's read Habakkuk in the last six months? Okay. There's a number of surveys out there online and in print which show which are the most and least popular or most and least read books in the Bible. And what we see here in the church reflects what those surveys show. That uh, the books of the New Testament are more popular than the books of the Old Testament. And those books of the Old Testament that are popular are more popular than the minor prophets. Habakkuk, Haggai, Obadiah, and so on. You know, a lot of people, not here in this church, of course, have a problem with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of violence, and some people are uncomfortable with that. There are a lot of good stories in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Joseph in Israel, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Abishak, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. But in parts of the Bible, particularly in the prophets, there is no real story. There's no narrative thread which can guide us through it. So it makes it a little harder to understand and a little harder to follow. Some people, of course, read the Bible to get inspiration and comfort, which is why Psalms in the Old Testament is one of the most popular books for people to read. I shall lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But you're not likely to be inspired by Leviticus, and you're not likely to find much comfort in Deuteronomy. Many people also don't like the Old Testament because they say, well, that's Old Covenant stuff. We have a new covenant here, which of course shows a complete misunderstanding of what the Bible is teaching. And then, of course, there are those who say, well, in the Old Testament we have a God of anger, wrath, and punishment, whereas in the New Testament we have Jesus who is full of love and mercy. But we have to realize there's only one God, only one God. And God demonstrates 
his love and mercy throughout the Old Testament. We only have to look, for example, at Exodus 34, 6, where God says, I will show mercy and grace and love and faithfulness, and I will forgive all manner of sins and inequity. God is love in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. But I'm not here to present a sermon defending the value and importance of the Old Testament. But I will leave you with just two points. One, if you don't pay attention to the Old Testament, how are you going to be aware that there is a plan of salvation from the beginning? And if you discount the Old Testament, how are you going to know and understand that all of it points towards our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As Christ himself said to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, everything that is in the prophets, the law, and the Psalms will have its fulfillment in me. And the Old Testament teaches that. So if I'm not going to give a sermon on the value of the Old Testament, what am I going to present to you? Well, actually, I'm going to take a book from the Old Testament which is one of the least read, least popular books in the Old Testament. And I came across three surveys uh, of least popular books. And this book, which I'm going to talk about, was in the bottom three of all of those three surveys, which shows you the lack of popularity that it has. So what book am I talking about? No, it's not Jonah. Jonah has the whale, or sorry, the, the big fish. Not Joel. I thought I heard it here. Nahum. Nahum. Yes. People don't like to read Nahum. But it's a very interesting book. It's interesting for a couple of reasons which I'll present. One is that most of the prophetic books are talking to the people of God, the chosen people, telling them that they, if they stray from him, they will be punished, but if they return to him, he will bless them amply. But there are two books that don't speak to God's people. Obadiah speaks to the people of Edom, and Nahum speaks to the people of Nineveh. But also, Nahum is a very poetic book. I don't know how many of you appreciate poetry, but you might appreciate Nahum because of its poetic insights. The author uses a lot of literary techniques. There's a lot of simile, there's a lot of metaphors, there's irony, there's rhetoric questions, there's hyperbole, there's even a little sarcasm. But it's also noted for its very descriptive imagery that he presents. And while there's a lot of poetry in the different kinds of prophets, Nahum has been called the poet laureate of the prophets. I'm told that it's even more poetic in the original Hebrew, but we don't have the original Hebrew. But in order to understand Nahum, let's go back, first of all, to the book of Jonah. So why don't we open our books and take a quick look at Jonah. We have seen the Bible verse that was read today, uh, 1-2, that God wants him wants Jonah to go to Nineveh because his evil has come their evil has come before him. 
And we know the story basically that Jonah doesn't want to go. He flees. He, he wants to uh, travel to Tarshish. He gets in a boat. He falls off the boat. He's swallowed up by a beast, spit up on the beach, goes to uh, Nineveh, uh, does God's work, but he's still not happy about it. And there's sort of three or four key verses in looking at this. The people repented. If we look at Jonah 3.5, the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. As the ruler said in Jonah 3.8, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil ways, Jonah 3.10. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Now, what was Jonah's response in 4.2? He says, I fled unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. So we have Nineveh repenting. But let's get back to Nahum. Let's look at the five W's as it relates to Nahum. Who was Nahum? We don't know. Apart from the book of Nahum, there is only one other reference in the Bible to Nahum. And that comes in the genealogy in Luke. So who is Nahum? We don't know. Where did he come from? He calls himself an Elkashite. Well, where is Elkosh? We have four choices. Alkosh, a town that's north of Nineveh. Or maybe it's Capernaum, which means the village of Nahum. Or perhaps it's a town a few miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Or maybe it's a town that's southwest of Jerusalem. We just don't know where he comes from. I might add we also don't know where he's buried, although there are four towns that claim that he is buried in their town. And when did he write the book? Well, we do have an idea of that because there are two sort of clues In the book of Nahum, he talks about the fall of the city, the Egyptian city of Thebes, which took place in 663 B.C. And at the other end, we know that Nineveh fell in 612 B.C. So he wrote between 663 and 612 B.C. And there are differences of opinion as to when he actually wrote in that period, but without going into the debate, he probably wrote it around 660 maybe 660 to 654 B.C. So we have a time frame for when he wrote it. Well, what exactly did he write? We'll look into it, but he wrote a message to the people of Nineveh saying that they are going to be destroyed. And why did he write this? Because he had been instructed to do so by God. So what is it about Nineveh 
that caused Jonah to flee, that caused Jonah, even after God's mercy, to be angry and upset that Nineveh had not been destroyed. And what is it that caused Nahum to present this detailed message to Nineveh about their impending uh, destruction? There's probably two or three things that we can look at. One is that in a period of time when there was a lot of cruelty, the Assyrian Empire was probably the cruelest of the cruel. Now, the Neo-Assyrian Empire at that time ruled from basically 900 B.C. to 605 B.C., And they were noted for their viciousness, their violence, their cruelty. Just look at this quote from King Ashurbanipal, who ruled the Assyrian Empire from 668 to 627 BC. I took the city and 800 of their fighting men. I put them to the sword and cut off their heads. Multitudes I captured alive, and the rest I burned with fire. I formed a pillar of the living and of heads against the city gates, and 700 men I impaled on stakes. Their young men and maidens I burned in the fire. Or this other record from the same king, Ashurbanipal, when he conquered the kingdom of Akkad. As for their men... I slit their tongues and brought them low. I cut down these people. There I dismembered their bodies, and I fed them to the dogs, the swine, the wolves and eagles, to the birds of heaven and the fish of the deep. So you had a whole culture which practiced cutting off hands and feet, cutting off ears and noses, lopping off people's heads, tying them with vines together and forming big pyramids of heads and carrying out massive tortures on captives, impaling them on poles, flaying them alive. And this was absolutely planned and systematically enforced as a way to intimidate everybody in their area. The Assyrian Empire ran in the west from the Mediterranean coast to central Iran in the east from the Caucasus Mountains in the north to the Arabian Peninsula and Egypt in the south. And all of that was under their cruel and vicious rule. Life under the Assyrian Empire, to use the words of Thomas Hobbes, the English philosopher in a different context, really was nasty, brutish, and short. And Jonah realized this and Nahum presented it. But there are two other reasons why Nahum would preach the destruction of Nineveh. One is that they were very deeply into idol worship. They had accepted God, they had repented, but they had gone back to idol worship. They had their national god Asher, but they were also big followers of the goddess Ishtar. And they were very deeply into the cult of Ishtar. So they were worshipping false gods. But thirdly, 
after they had repented, what did they do? They unrepented. And it isn't clear how long that it took, but it's estimated that within 20 to 30 years, they were back to their same evil ways that they had always had. And that's a slap in the face of God. You had accepted God, you had repented on your sins, and then you had turned away dramatically from God. And there's a parallel there with what is mentioned in Hebrews 6, that is harder on a person who accepts Christ and then turns away from Christ. And you can see an Old Testament equivalent with what happens with the city of Nineveh. So let's turn and look at exactly what Nahum has said. It's a short book. It's only three chapters, 47 verses. And uh, we won't go through a verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Nahum. Uh, that, that's best saved for a Sabbath school Nahum 101 class, which will probably never be held. But anyway, let's take a look at it. So if we can look at Nahum 1. Now we just look at verse 1. What is the burden that is placed on Nineveh? The burden placed on Nineveh is that this message gives them the certainty of their destruction. So they are going to have to live with that. And Nahum mentions that it's a vision. So it's not just something he is presenting as an individual. Where do visions come from? Sorry, where do visions come from? God. This is coming from God. This message to Nahum, from Nahum comes to God. God is jealous. But God is not jealous in the way that we understand jealousy, the kind of petty things that we get jealous about, that somebody earns more money than I do, that somebody's more handsome than I am, or if you're a woman, that somebody is supposedly more beautiful than you are. These are petty jealousies. But in the Bible, when it talks about God being jealous, he's talking about faithfulness and worship of false idols. There is only one true God. You shall worship no other gods but me. If you turn aside from me and worship false gods, there are consequences to that. That's the jealousy of God. And the Lord will take vengeance. But it's not the kind of petty vindictiveness to which we as humans have that I'm going to get even with you. You wronged me and I'm going to wrong you back. No. God's vengeance defends righteousness and punishes those who are unrighteous. That's what God's vengeance is. In verse 3, it mentions that the Lord is slow to anger. And this is a common theme throughout the Old Testament. There are many books which refer to God as being slow to anger. We saw one when we read Jonah 4.2. Jonah knew that God was slow to anger. But if you read through the Bible, you'll find that reference to God being slow to anger, to being long-suffering time after time after time. God gives people the opportunity to repent. God gives people the opportunity to change their ways. And that's something that's reflected in the New Testament as well. 
when we look at Second Peter 3, verse 9, which many of you know by heart, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us words, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And in verses 3 to 9, God, excuse me, from verses 3 to 8, Nahum puts forward God. God is all-powerful. God controls everything. God is in charge of nature. God is in charge of nations because he wants to make it very clear Again, that the message that he is giving to Nineveh comes from God. It is of God. It is not of man. Nothing can stand in the way of God's decision. Who can abide in the fierceness of anger, he said? Who can stand before his indignation? Very, the answer is simple. Nobody. Nobody can. But he also has a message in verse 7 that is positive. A message for the faithful. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. So he will be there for his people. Remember, he formed a hedge around Job. Remember that the Lord is a shelter in a time of storm. Remember that God is there for his people. So that while the primary message is to the people of Nineveh, there's a secondary message for the people of Judah, that I, God, am there for you, that I will protect you, that I will offer you salvation, that even at times when the enemy appears strong, when God appears absent, it is true that God is stronger than any enemy, and God will protect his people. Have faith in that. Have faith. In verse 8, he refers to an overrunning flood will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. A flood means that they will be overwhelmed. They will be washed away. Nothing will survive. And he will make an utter end of the place. An utter end, completely final. There is no second chance. There is no other opportunity. Once you die, you're dead, and you will have no afterlife. It is done. It is finished. The affliction, verse 9, will not rise up a second time. Nineveh will not have a second chance because it will be completely destroyed. And in verse 10, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. Refers to what will happen at the time of the second coming, the burning up. And it's interesting to note here that Nineveh never did arise a second time. It disappeared completely off the map. As a matter of fact, when Alexander the Great passed by after his victory at the Battle of Arbela in 331 B.C., he wasn't even aware that there was a city there. There were just some hills. The place had been completely overgrown. And as a matter of fact, 
Well, let me put it this way. There were a lot of people who didn't believe that King David ever existed until archaeological evidence was presented that he did. There were a lot of people who didn't believe that was, there was such a thing as the Hittite Empire until archaeological evidence was presented that that empire did exist. And similarly, there were a lot of people who didn't believe that the city of Nineveh existed for a long period of time, until, mid, until the 1850s when it was rediscovered. And the archaeologists since then have been discovering more and more about Nineveh. So we know that it had seven and a half miles of fortified walls, that the walls were 60 feet high and they were 40 feet wide, that uh, there were two palaces there, that there was a massive temple to the goddess Ishtar, all of these things. So now we know that there was a Nineveh. So there's a lesson here for all of us. And I think Christ put it aptly when he spoke with Thomas. Thomas, you believe because you have seen Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. So we believe in what we have not seen. There's a lesson there. And God promises that he will break the bondage that Assyria has had over the chosen people. Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in roughly 722 BC and deported a large part of the population, as the king at the time said, into the midst of Assyria. But they also did the reverse. The people that the Assyrians conquered in the Arabian Peninsula, they deported to Samaria. The idea was you were no longer in your setting. You're going to be a bit disoriented that way. But the bonds that they had had over Israel, over Judah, will be broken. That is the promise that God makes. And in the last verse of Nahum 1, he makes it quite specific. Judah, keep thy solemn feasts. Perform thy vows, for the wicked are no more. Again, he is utterly cut off. So you, Judah, can celebrate the fact that you are free now. You are free from this tyranny that existed. It no longer affects you. And that is another promise that he makes to the people of Judah. So let's turn to Nahum 2. Because we've set the stage in looking at God's promise, God's declaration of the vengeance that he will have upon Nahum. In Nahum 2, we get to look at specifically a description of what's going to happen to Nineveh. And I think some of it you can just close your eyes and imagine. The shields of his mighty men is made red, the valiant men are in scarlet. The soldiers are dressed in their scarlet uniforms. And there's reference to scarlet uniforms in various places in the Bible. The sun glints off the armor of the chariots and of the horses and of the soldiers and of their spears and of their swords so that it looks like flaming torches. The armies are lined up and he's telling to Nineveh that they are there and ready and they are going to destroy you. 
So no matter what you Nineveh do, whether you build up your fortifications, whether you send soldiers, it's not going to matter because the enemy will prevail. The chariots are going to break through into your streets. There's going to be so many of them and they will just run through your town. They, they will charge the walls. As he says, they shall make haste to the walls thereof in verse 5. In actual fact, they didn't make haste to the walls because it was a three-month siege before the city fell. And in verse 6, the gates of the river shall be opened, the palace shall be dissolved. In a very literal sense, the gates of the rivers were opened because it's recounted that at the time of the siege of Nineveh, the Kosa River, which runs through the middle of Nineveh, overflowed its banks, and the water was so high that it undermined the walls of the city at that point, making it easier for the attackers to get in. But also, the Assyrian king had established a system of irrigation which brought water from the north through into the city. And when the city was besieged, they shut all of the sluice gates. But when the flood came and the lake filled up, the Assyrians, according to the account, opened up these sluice gates. And again, the water flowed down through the canals and undermined the city walls, making it easier for the attackers to get in. So the gates really were opened. And the people will say when the attack comes that, as it says in verse 8, stand, stand, they shall cry, but none shall look back because they're too busy running away. They will flee before the attackers. Verse 9, take ye the spoils of silver, the take ye the spoils of gold. For is none an end of the store and glory out of the pleasant furniture. The Assyrian Empire was noteworthy for stealing everything that it could find. So when it conquered a kingdom, it would steal all of their values, valuables. In fact, uh, when they conquered Thebes, there were some massive multi-ton statues there which they took all the way from Thebes and dragged them all the way back to Nineveh. So they would take all of the gold, all of the silver, all of the jewelry, everything in the cities that they found. And if they didn't literally conquer and destroy a particular kingdom, they would exact tribute from them. And there's references in the Bible to how many talents of gold had to be paid and how many talents of silver had to be paid. They would take it all and they would store it all up. And they had so much that they couldn't spend it all even though the king did a lot to develop the city, there was so much left that when the attackers broke into the city, there were treasure houses full of treasure. And actually, it's reported that when the Medes got in and got past the first ranks of defenders and slaughtered people in the streets and so on, and entered into some of these places, they were so impressed that they stopped to loot the places. And as a result... Large parts of the Assyrians escaped and lived to fight another day. And the king of Babylon actually arrived after the Medes had started pillaging and uh, let, the Assyri- uh, let the Assyrians escape, and he was not pleased at what the Medes had done. But there was so much treasure that they took it all. Verse 10. 
refers to the destruction itself, empty, void, and waste. And there's an alliteration that some have used. It is uh, devastated, devoid, and I can't remember the last D. Excuse me. (laughs) And they will all be afraid, they say in verse 10. The knees will smite together, the heart will melteth. There'll be pain. They can do nothing against the attack that's coming. And in 11 and 12, and indeed in 13, you have the references to lions. As in many kingdoms, the Assyrians like to claim that they were like lions, and their king was a lion, and he used the image of a lion, as other cultures and other societies do. So the lion was able to bring, kill its enemies, as they said. The lion did tear in pieces enough for his whelps, and strangled for his lioness and filled his holes with prey and his dens with raven. Verse 12. That's what the king of Assyria did. It killed its enemies, and it brought its wealth back to Nineveh. But again, in verse 12, the young lions will be cut off. They will be killed. The warriors, the princes, will all be killed. There will be nothing left of them. Because, why? Because God is against them. God is against them. Let's look at Nahum 3 very quickly. It starts off with the verse, Woe to the bloody city. And this is an accurate description of what Nineveh was. It was a bloody city because it believed in the shedding of the blood of its enemies. It shed blood everywhere it went. So it had the title of being a bloody city. And again, we have the attack, the attack of the chariots. And in verse 3, we see what happens. There is a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses. And there is none end of corpuses. They stumble as they go over the corpses. Because the alliance of Medes, Scythians, Chaldeans and Babylonians exacted the same kind of revenge upon Assyria that the Assyrians had placed upon them earlier. And that, of course, isn't the only only time or the only example. When the Romans conquered Jerusalem in AD 70, when they got past the first two walls of defense and entered into the third walls close to the temple, the Romans killed everybody they found. There's the description that the temple steps flowed like a waterfall of blood because the Romans were killing everybody. And this is what happened in Nineveh. The attacking alliance killed everybody they found except for those who escaped after they stopped to steal everything. And in verses 4 and 5 and 6, Nahum refers to the whoredoms and the harlotry of Assyria. And this is a direct reference, as elsewhere in the Bible, to idolatry, to false worship. You worship falsely. Assyria, or let's put it this way, Assyria was the predecessor of Babylon in being false. And that's what he's referring to in these verses. And so he is going to expose their idolatry. He is going to expose their harlotry. 
he is going to shame them before the whole world by exposing what they actually are. And in verse 7, It shall come to pass that all that look upon thee shall flee from thee and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? When shall I seek comforters for thee? Rhetorical questions both. Who will bemoan her? Absolutely nobody. Nobody will mourn for Nineveh. And who, who will, uh, where do we find comforters for her? Nowhere. Because nobody is going to comfort Nineveh because every nation in that area suffered from what Nineveh did. They may have respected and feared Nineveh, but above all, they hated the Assyrian Empire and they exacted their revenge upon her. Verses 8 down to 10 refer specifically to the Assyrians' conquest of Thebes, which was then the Egyptian capital. And basically what, there's, what Nahum is saying there is Thebes thought it was invincible. Thebes had the Nile River on one side, it had canals that surrounded it, it had fortifications. It thought it would never fall. Just like you, Nineveh, think you will never fall, but you will. You will fall. And look what happened to Nineveh. They thought that they had supporters. The supporters are Libya and uh, Puntland, actually. They thought they had the support of Egypt, Ethiopia. They thought they were strong, but they weren't. She was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the top of all streets. And they cast lots for her honorable men. And her great men were bound in chains and taken away as slaves. Actually, they were auctioned off. That's how you got a slave. But the verse in verse 10 where it says, Children were dashed in pieces at the top of all streets was literal. This is what you did because you didn't want the children growing up and seeking revenge upon you, so you killed them. And there's actually an echo of this in Psalm 137.9. Blessed are those who dash the heads of your children against the rocks. That's just what they did. And Nahum points out in verses 12 onward that it's going to be easy, you know, You guys think you can defend your city, but no, it's going to be easy. It's going to be like, I don't even have to pick the figs off the trees. They're just going to fall into my hands. I'll just eat them, you know. You are not going to be fighting soldiers. You're going to be like women. I guess it's not politically correct to say that uh, the people will be like women anymore. But uh, (laughs) I, I, I certainly remember that uh, when I was in primary school and you'd get into fights in the schoolyard and somebody would say to me afterwards, man, you fight like a girl. Uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, what they're saying, what are you saying here is that maybe they would fight like girls. But, and again, he, he, he makes some interesting imagery related into the verses 15 to 17 about locusts, which I quite like. You know, there's three references to locusts. 
locusts come along and eat everything, while well, you, the Assyrian Empire, were like locusts. You would destroy everything that you, that you found. Secondly, you may have numbers. You can be lots. You can be as many as the locusts, but it's not going to matter. You're still going to lose. You're still going to be destroyed. And in the siege, you're going to be like locusts in the cold. When locusts in the cold, they just sit there, and when the sun comes up, then they run away. Yes, you're not going to be able to do anything like the locusts who are cold. And when the sun comes up, you're just going to run away. You're finished. You're done. And the shepherds slumber, verse 18, O king of Assyria, because the leaders would flee, leaving the people. And the people were scattered everywhere after the assault. And the last verse, there is no healing. There is no, the wound is grievous. All is done. All is finished. And those who learn of the destruction will be quite happy. They will clap over your destruction. Because whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? Your wickedness had been upon every country in the Assyrian Empire. And it's noteworthy that Nahum ends very abruptly. There's no sort of denouement. There's no sort of extra things there. It just ends. Why? Because the empire of Assyria just ended. That's it. There's no more. It's an utter end. It, it is finished. It is done. So what are the lessons of this? There's three messages that Nahum presents in this particular book. The first message directed to the primary audience, Nineveh, is that you will be destroyed. You do not have a second chance. And if he gave his prophecy in 660 to 654, there were still 40 years before the fall of Nineveh. Did Nineveh repent again during that time? No, they didn't. They had time, but their probation was over. They were going to be destroyed, according to the prophecy. The second message was the people of Judah embedded in the message to the people of Nineveh. I will be there for you, my people. I will be a stronghold for you. I will be a fortress for you. And this is something that we all must recognize today, that God is there for us, that God is there to protect us and save us and help us. But there's a third message that is also directed at each and every one of us. And that message is the message of judgment. Judgment. And the Bible is replete with examples of the judgment of God. And we'll just look at a, a couple of them very quickly. We go back to the flood and Noah. What did God say in Genesis? Genesis 6-5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And again in Genesis 6-12. And God looked upon the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. But then how long did God give them to change their ways? 
How long did he give them? 120 years. 120 years the people had to repent and change their ways. Did they repent? Did they change their ways? No, they didn't. And then came the destruction. Then came the judgment that God had placed upon them. And there's a lesson there for each and every one of us. Time goes by. You know, I've sinned a lot. Well, I'm not talking about me personally, though I have sinned, but people sin a lot. Nothing happens. So you figure, hey, nothing's going to happen. You know, 10 years have gone by, 20 years have gone by, 100 years have gone by, nothing's happened. My sin is forgotten, but it isn't. God remembers all our sins, and at the right time, the punishment will come. We also look at what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember God said, I will come down because of their evil. But God showed again, in a different way, that he was slow to anger. What was the conversation between Abraham and God about? Well, if there's 50 good men, will he spare the city? Yeah, I'll spare the city. Well, what about if there's only 45? Okay, I'll spare the city. Or 40, or 30, or 20, or 10. God was willing to spare the whole city if there were at least 10 good men, good people in that city. But were there 10? No, there weren't. And so the city was destroyed. The judgment of God was carried out. And there's an interesting example of judgment at the time the people of Israel reached the promised land. You know the story. They reached the borders of the promised land and uh, they sent out 12 scouts to spy out the land. You know, 10 plus Joshua and Caleb. And what did they find? Yes, indeed, it was a land filled of milk and honey as God had promised. But it was also, according to 10 of the spies, filled with giants. We are like grasshoppers compared with them. We can't go there and defeat them. So they came back, and whose side did the people of Israel take? They took the side of those who didn't want to go and didn't take the side of the two that said we should go. Well, this is basically calling God a liar, isn't it? God brought them to the promised land, and they didn't believe that they could go into the promised land. So they're saying God lied. It's even worse in the original Hebrew because they say they slandered God. Now, what was the judgment that he inflicted upon the people of Israel? That they would wander for 40 years and that that generation would die without entering into the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. So Caleb, your namesake did the right thing in following the word of God. So I pray, Caleb, that you will do the same for God. And the issue of judgment is not restricted to the Old Testament, not at all. Let's just look at a couple of the Proverbs, or excuse me, the parables of Jesus in the New Testament. And we won't go through all the parables, but we look at the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13. You know, you have the good and you have the bad, you let them grow together until comes the time of the harvest. And then what happens? In Matthew 13.30, we have the answer. Let both grow together until the harvest. 
And in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather you together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. The wicked will be destroyed, the faithful will be saved. And when we look at the story of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, again the sheep's on the right hand, the goats on the left hands. I won't go through the parable, you all know it. But I just want to point out what the decision is at the end. The goats, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Judgment is there, my friend. Judgment is coming. Whether we like it or not, we have to recognize that there will be judgment. And next quarter, we're going to be studying the book of Revelations, and that's very much focused on the judgment that is going to come. And I just want to finish by quoting something from uh, the Adventist writer George Knight in his commentary on the letters of John and Jude. Talking about Jude, which incidentally is another one of the least popular books in the Bible. People don't like to read Jude either. But there's a message that he, he mentions here, and this I quote from George Knight. But to both those who deny future judgment and those who anticipate it with joy, there is one message one message. Judgment will come. Thank you very much and God bless.